Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, my name is Felicity Hall, and I am a senior associate in the Climate and Sustainability Practice at Global Council. Today, we will be discussing US education policy and the changes that we are seeing under the Biden administration. Joining me is Chris Rinkus, practice lead for US political due diligence at Global Council. Chris has extensive experience in US government and public policy, most recently serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary at the US Department of Education. Today, we're going to be focusing on two key areas of US education policy. The first, is the $200 billion stimulus which K-12 schools have received over the last year. We'll be looking at how this money is likely to be spent and where opportunities might lie for companies and investors. Secondly, we'll be touching on forward-looking calls for President Biden to cancel outstanding student loan debt by executive order, focusing on how probable such policy is and the potential implications of this unprecedented action. So firstly, welcome Chris. Thank you for speaking to me today. Hi, Fliss. Thank you for that very nice introduction. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Great. So I thought um, that it would be great to start with a little bit of a primer on the US education system. Uh, I myself have been through the English education system, which is clearly very different to the US one. And I thought it'd be helpful for our listeners just to start with a sort of 101, very basic level, what makes the US system different? Um, you know, what do we mean when we talk about the K-12 system? And most importantly, how is each part funded? As this will be really important when we're talking about um, sort of stimulus measures that we're seeing. Sure. So the, the US K-12 public education system uh, is fairly unique, um, especially when compared to Europe. Uh, the, the hallmark of the US system is decentralization. Uh, so for example, I worked uh, for several years at the Federal Department of Education, um, which oversees national K-12 policy. That role is in fact very limited. Um, the federal government provides about 10% of all US education funding, which you know, amounts to somewhere in the, in the ballpark of $60 billion in a normal year. Um, and although that's not insignificant, it also pales in comparison to the contributions in funding made by state governments and local governments. And really, the thing to know is that's not an accident. Um, the, the US system was very much designed for what's referred to as local control, uh, with the concept being that families, residents, uh, students, parents should have uh, accountability down to the lowest possible level. So in the US, it's very common um, for a local school board to oversee a school district. Uh, there are about 15,000 school districts in the US. Um, you know, they can range in size from a single school all the way up to New York City, which has uh, hundreds and hundreds of schools um, and, and over a million students. Uh, but it remains that federal role is limited. Um, and when you think about what we've gone through in the past year with COVID, it's actually been a real obstacle. Um, the system being so decentralized largely operates 
in you know thousands of different ways. Um, the federal government has limited means to influence uh, those things. You, you might recall uh, last summer, then President Trump uh, made a, a pretty big show of demanding that schools reopen. Um, and folks were quick to point out that he really has no authority to open or close schools, that the decentralization means those decisions are pushed down to local school boards and local district superintendents. Um, so in any case, you know, the, the big thing to keep in mind about, about the U.S. education system is, you know, it's at least 50 different systems, if you think about uh, it in the context of U.S. states. Uh, really, though, you might argue it's, in fact, thousands of different systems because the districts themselves also have a large degree of autonomy. And so um, funding is a way to influence the decisions those semi-autonomous school districts make. Um, but it really is just that it's influence. Um, for the most part, even states are limited in how much they can mandate school districts do one thing or another. And taken all together, you know, it makes for some good. It's good when schools are accountable to parents in a way that they can really feel, you know, they can walk down the street and talk to their school board. On the other hand, when you think about things on a national scale, it's very hard to affect change because there's so many different individual school districts and the context, you know, are so, are, are so different. Great, that's really helpful context. So, you know, what I'm taking from that is we've got a highly decentralized system, um, but these stimulus measures we're seeing are central, they're, they're federal measures. Um, you know, what's the, can you go into a little bit of detail, what the package is, what's the interplay between, you know, that federal system, but, but also the state system um, and, and, you know, where, where are we with this? Has, you know, has money started hitting bank accounts yet? Or, you know, where in this process are we? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so over the past 12 months, there have been three major stimulus packages passed by Congress uh, for K-12 education. Two were signed into law by President Trump and one was signed into law by President Biden about a month ago. Um, and all together, it amounts to about $200 billion uh, in relief funds for K-12 schools. And that's just an unprecedented sum of money. Um, you know, there's really no historical comparison. Uh, the closest might be in 2009 after the uh, financial collapse, there was a large K-12 stimulus uh, on the order of about uh, $90 billion or so this is more than double that. Um, and so, you know, the amount of money that's being injected into the, the system is, is really remarkable. Um, I think an important thing for folks to understand to tie back to this point about decentralization is this money is largely discretionary, meaning it can be spent on almost anything uh, related to, you know, student learning loss or resuming school operations or mitigating for COVID. I mean, the, the possibilities are nearly endless. Um, and that too is something that's pretty unique for school districts. You know, in the, in the US, uh, school districts are historically cash strapped and the vast majority of their resources are typically tied up in personnel, um, you know, like teachers, uh, some estimates upwards of 90% of their money. And so it, it really restricts districts from being nimble 
consumers, you know, they just don't have the discretionary monies to go out and buy new computers or, uh, you know, other technology the same way a different type of business uh, might. And so to all of a sudden have this new money and not only that, have it be discretionary really opens up a world of, of possibility. Um, you know, the decentralization I mentioned means these decisions will be made They'll be guided by the federal government. They'll be guided by state leaders. But district superintendents are are really looking at a cash windfall that they can decide to spend as they see best fit. Um, and I do think, just given the nature of the problem that we're trying to solve, which is for the better part of the past twelve months, uh, many students have been participating in virtual learning. Uh, their in-person schools have been closed or only partially open, um, and the result is there's a ton of lost time to be made up for, you know, we talk about this in terms of learning loss, uh, you know, how many months of math and reading did a kid lose or fail to acquire because their school was so different last year. It's really significant. It's most concentrated among students that were already behind some of the most vulnerable, you know, African American students, Hispanic American, low income students uh, who receive special education services and others. So I think these district superintendents, when they think about this cash windfall, are really going to need to invest in some innovative technology solutions that can help these kids access education in a sort of on-demand way to help make up the lost time. Because come this fall, most, hopefully all schools will be reopened. They'll be open on a conventional schedule, you know, eight to three, nine to four. But to pack another year's worth of learning to that is going to require digital solutions that kids can access at home, uh, you know, at night, on weekends, and during the summer. So, I mean, you know, we've got these three different packages amounting to, to $200 billion. You've already hinted at the fact that a lot of this is going into sort of technology. Um, where are the opportunities here? If I'm a, a company or an investor, uh, I can see this huge windfall coming my way. How do I position myself to take advantage of this? Is this purely you know, ed tech companies looking at, at virtual learning, or is some of this stimulus likely to go into, you know, things like rebuilding buildings, investing in, in infrastructure for schools? Where where exactly is this funding being channeled? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. So, so here's the great irony. The past 12 months, the U.S. experienced more virtual learning than it ever had before, um, and many parents and students were unhappy with their virtual learning experience. You know, there's been lots of horror stories about young kids, uh, you know, planted in front of Zoom for hours on end. But the, but the irony is to solve this problem we have around learning loss, it's actually going to require more online tools. And so, you know, the, the opportunity lies in how do we sort the really effective online learning practices from the ineffective or the effective platforms from the ineffective platforms and and help these kids who are behind access the digital tools that work, ideally supplemented by in-person learning. Um, and that's that's a that's a tall order. Um, you know, there's there's a lot out there. Not all of it is good, but for those that can clearly establish that their digital tools are good, that it's not kind of kids in front of a screen um, wasting their time. All of a sudden, you're opening up this funding opportunity wherein 
districts and states have lots of money to spend. They're desperate for the things that work and the kids really need um, this stuff right away. And, and that to me feels like an excellent product market fit. Um, but to, to do that, you know, we really have to interrogate what's working and why and, and be willing to forego those things that didn't work. Um, because I, I do think, you know, parents and students are at a little bit of a breaking point where if they're subjected to more virtual school that doesn't appear to be working, folks are just going to give up. And, and I think the summer will be the first test of that. You know, if school districts just try to do more of what they did this past fall, you know, while it's hot outside and kids prefer to be elsewhere, it's just not going to be effective. And then I'll just say, lastly, you know, I, I don't think this rules out analog solutions. You know, there's been lots of talk about um, tutoring programs and sort of wide scale intensive uh, efforts to to put kids in front of tutors and other sort of supplemental education providers um, to help make up the lost time. I think those are those are promising. Um, but the the basic reality is that the digital schools scale so much more effectively. They're so much more cost effective to purchase a license as opposed to hiring a new person. Um, I think those tools hold much, much higher promise if we can simply identify which are the best ones um, and help folks, uh, you know, navigate their way to those. So it sounds like, uh, you know, to me, a lot of the solution here is this money is heading for predominantly digital solutions, digital technologies, which help kids catch up. This immediately brings to my mind this sort of one issue I'm keen to explore is this issue of inequality. You know, we've seen a huge focus globally on issues of inequality, but particularly in the US, you've had the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, before that, the Me Too movement, these sort of big global movements, which are creating a much greater social conscience on these, these big issues that, that we're facing. And these issues have been, you know, extended further uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic and particularly around things to do with access to internet, access to, to education and this sort of widening gap that we're seeing that those that have access to these tools are sort of staying at least level with where their education should be and those in more deprived situations are, are falling even further behind and it's really exaggerating these inequalities. Um, so I'm keen to, to get your perspective on, on how um, these big discussions that we're having in the Biden administration along with these issues, how this fits with this education stimulus, because clearly education is, is the grassroots way of, of solving these sort of problems. Um, so, you know, how, how does the backdrop of COVID affect where this, this, fund, this funding is being channeled? Um, are provisions being made to ensure it helps those kids who have been sort of hardest hit and are, are left behind in this sort of lost learning metrics? Um, so keen for your perspective on that. So a couple of quick points. Uh, I mean, structurally, the money is designed to go to um, in the in the highest quantities to the school districts with the most poverty, which is a, which is a good thing. It follows um, we call it here Title One formula, which is based on you know students from low income families and the quantity and concentrations of those in a given school. Um, the formula is imperfect. You know, it it rewards um, quantity at times over percentage, which people see as a as a problem. Um, but in in any case, you know, I think that's a that sort of universally recognized as a good thing. The the challenge, however, is, you know, for a long time, the federal government has channeled its money through this 
formula and it still doesn't reach the neediest kids in the way that you know would make the most difference um i think on the on the plus side you know conversations sort of the reckoning with injustice in this country over the past year has helped especially with covid you know lift up that it, the pandemic didn't affect all groups equally and that we need to prioritize our response to the groups that were most affected. And, and at least in this country, that tends to be, um, you know, racial ethnic minority groups, low-income families and such. So I, I do think most uh, education leaders are viewing this through that lens of equity and are interested in prioritizing the relief funding for, you know, kids who need them, you know, who need the most help. Um, but I think, I think it remains, um, there's never enough resources to fully treat the, the problem. Um, and so to me, you know, the best answer for this is how do we ensure the money that we do have is spent as effectively as possible? And so I think, you know, that prioritization is one part of it. Um, you know, the only way we're going to make up the past year is if we help the kids who suffered the most. Um, and then two, you know, looking to spend in an efficient manner. I mean, it's gotten better in the past, you know, 20 years, but historically, at least school districts were not considered, you know, particularly efficient when it came to, to spending. And so, you know, I really think folks need to, to consider not only, you know, what things are effective generally, but what things are cost effective, you know, if there's a solution that, um, you know, costs a low amount per student as compared to a high amount per student, then, you know, let's weigh the relative effectiveness and then invest much more heavily in the thing that's not only good, but cheap. Um, you know, that's a, that's an important mindset um, to make the best use of, the, of these monies. Uh, and then I'll say lastly, because you mentioned, I mean, the digital divide is sort of a perfect example of this. Um, there are lots of challenges facing education, some as a result of COVID, uh, some are more complicated than others, but the digital divide should be one where with the amount of resources that have now been allocated to districts, like that should be a significant part of any um, set of solutions. So, you know, kids, if kids need digital solutions, if kids need access to the internet or devices just to generally participate in schools um, as a as kind of a basic uh, necessity, then we've got to do that first. Um, and, I, and I do think there's been good efforts made. You know, some research suggests that over the past year, as many as 4 million students who previously didn't have access to a reliable device or internet at home now has it. That's something like a, a 30 or even 40% reduction. Um, and and that, that to me is, is, a, is a very good sign you know, and, and also now with school buildings reopening, libraries, community centers all reopening, um, kids should have more opportunities to access the internet, you know, in order to do schoolwork. So I think there's a lot of um, tailwinds behind this, but, you know, ultimately we've, we've got to make that um, investment. And, and, and the very, very last thing I'll say is like, this all stands in contrast to the fact that if, if folks aren't thoughtful in this manner and they instead use their funding to shore up pension debts or you know effectively attend to the sort of plumbing of the school district you know the things that people don't really see or feel um then we're not going to 
see the change that we that we need. Um, and you know, as, as somebody who worked in a budget office for many years at a large urban school district, I can tell you, you know, the one of the first tendencies of a budget director is to pay down, you know, outstanding debts and other cost pressures. This is just not the time to do it. You know, we've got an acute problem that we need to solve. And um, if we concentrate on how we help the kids that were most harmed by the pandemic, we'll be doing much more good than if we were to just pay down long-term debt. So, I mean, that, that 4 million figure is, that's quite amazing. It shows the, the scale of, of change that we've seen in, in the way that education is working over the pandemic. Um, I'm yeah, interested- when, um, when Americans put their mind to something, <laughs> we can do pretty good by it. It's just, how do we get everybody to agree to do the same thing? Exactly. Um, I'm interested now to sort of zone out a little bit from this sort of, you know, we've looked at what this stimulus is, where it's heading, what this means for these sort of broader issues of, of inequality and the education system at large. Um, but to look more at the, the effects of this and that those sort of big macro effects. Now, my background prior to GC is, is in investing uh, and, you know, I, I'm conditioned therefore to see these sort of numbers and think, uh, I think of things like inflation and these sort of broader economic effects. Um, but I'm sure that the macro effects don't just, you know, exist in that bubble of, of those sort of economic implications, but extend much further. And I'm thinking here about things like funding cliffs and broader sort of, you know, the sustainability of funding of the US education system. What do you think uh, the key things we should be looking for over the coming year uh, or years should be in terms of those bigger macro questions and macro effects of this sort of stimulus? That, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I, I think the the big, you know, the question at the very top of all of this, uh, you know, the sort of central thesis of the Biden recovery plan is that going big on economic stimulus is, uh, you know, is is less of a risk than going small. Um, you know, there's a there's a strand of thought among economists, especially those, um, you know, who were in and around. The Obama administration's response to the financial crisis that would suggest that in 2008 and 2009, they in fact went too small and it resulted in a, um, a slow, you know, in fact, a very slow recovery. Um, everything about the Biden response points to going very big. Um, I mentioned this is, you know, the education stimulus is unprecedented in size. The package, um, you know, the American Rescue Plan uh, as a whole is, you know, a is almost a $2 trillion package that is also, you know, equally unprecedented in terms of its um, stimulus. And so, you know, really the, the question will be, was going big the right thing to do? Um, you know, the, the, the risk is inflationary pressure. You know, there's already some signs of that. Uh, the Fed has suggested they're going to let the economy run hot for a while to get back to sort of historical inflationary levels. Um, but that that novel thinking makes the market jumpy. Uh, you know, people are are very keen for signs of inflation and you know sort of react in turn. So so that is really the central question is was going is going, you know, and we're still very much in the in, in the experiment, you know, was going big the right thing? Um, and will it be worth any temporary pain, you know, associated with inflation? I think for education specifically, there are 
there are a number of interesting sub-questions. The U.S. compared to other OECD countries globally funds education as a lower percentage of GDP. Uh, this funding makes a, a small dent in that. And so, you know, a sub-question will be like, are people going to, to view the results of this money, you know, when it's put into things like new technology and um, services as uh, a new basic standard? And if so, then somebody's going to have to foot the bill, you know, either state and local funding is going to have to come up or federal funding is going to have to come up or all three. Um, and if there's public pressure to do that, it's certainly plausible. Um, you know, it's plausible. And, and so that will be an interesting thing to monitor whether or not this creates an appetite for higher education spending on the whole. Um, and, uh, you know, it's worth mentioning too that the Biden administration in its uh, FY22 fiscal budget request has suggested that the Department of Education be funded at a much higher level than it has been in the past. Um, I don't think they'll get all of it, but, you know, if there's a, if there's a sizable increase in the annual recurring funding, that's an important marker. Um, you know, once that funding level ticks up, it's much harder for politicians to move it back down. And so if that number increases, and because that's annual and recurring, that could have a, you know, a long-term systemic effect on, on education funding as a whole. Um, and then the very last thing I'll say is, you know, the, the other big risk specific to education and the stimulus is that all of this money is one-time relief money. And so it creates the prospect of a cliff once the money goes away. It, it won't go away for you know, another three or five years, um, but if it gets tied up in things that have recurring costs, like for example, software licenses, um, and if there's no additional funding coming to help plug the gap, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, all of these great things that we bought over the preceding three or five years are going to be on the budget chopping block. Um, so it's it's just worth thinking about, you know, what are the sustainable long-term solutions? You know, how do we make sure the things that get purchased through stimulus money end up migrating to annual recurring funding in a way that protects them for the long term. And I think for vendors and you know for the industry, that that really means you know the next three years is kind of a shakedown trial, and folks have to demonstrate the value because once that federal money goes away, there is going to be a question as to whether or not to continue um, these things. And only those, you know, the budgets in school districts are tight. So it's really only going to be the things that are working that get picked up. Um, and I think in after 2009, uh, that stimulus, you saw, you know, 2012, 2013, a lot of stuff that got funded through federal money went away. Um, and so that notion of sustainability, long-term thinking, which is a little bit uncomfortable for the typical school district administrator needs to be part of this from the beginning. That makes sense. I want to pick up there on the concept of sustainability. Uh, I want to look at this in terms of this debt cancellation policy that, that Biden is, is sort of um, toying with. Um, now, my understanding of this is that the debt cancellation policy relates to, to the higher education system. And essentially what Biden is proposing is 
the widespread cancellation of student debt as a sort of means of helicopter money, i.e. putting money directly into the hands of Americans in order to stimulate the economy. And this is the second policy angle that, that we spoke about at the start. Um, and the reason I want to pick up on this in terms of sustainability is this seems to me, you know, this is very unprecedented, um, very unusual and not terribly sustainable, perhaps. Um, can you give, you know, just a, a little bit of an overview of where the current policy discussions around this are and what sort of scale of, of debt cancellation is, is being considered here? Sure. Um, I mean, this is a massive question and and really, you know, probably the biggest remaining education item on the Biden administration's agenda now that they've delivered on this um, K-12 stimulus. Uh, so let me say first, uh, I wrote about this on the Global Council website. It's uh, global-council.com. So if you want to hear all, see all this and more, you can see what I wrote there. Um, but I will say, you know, a couple points now, which is the student loan, uh, you know, debt crisis in the United States is very real. Uh, there's currently $1.7 trillion in student loan debt, you know, being held by Americans. That's more than any other type of debt, save uh, home mortgages. So it's, it's bigger than auto debt, it's bigger than credit card debt, and it's held by fewer people. Uh, than either credit card or, or automobile debt is. And so for a lot of folks, it's it's just crippling. You know, it, it prevents you from ever buying a house, sometimes from having kids, from saving or traveling, because every month you're accountable, you know, for hundreds of dollars in student loan payments, um, which incidentally can never be discharged even in bankruptcy. And so, so folks, from sort of all political stripes agree something needs to be done. And frankly, people from all stripes agree that the problem is getting worse. Um, you know, the, the student loan debt portfolio in the United States was in the order of, you know, hundreds of millions, maybe low billions in, in the early 2000s. It's metastasized into this nearly $2 trillion um, amount, you know, in, in basically 20 years, which is just remarkable um, and driven primarily by two factors. First, uh, colleges have raised tuition at, a, at an unbelievable rate. I mean, far greater than inflation, um, you know, just off the charts increases. Uh, and then simultaneously, the federal government has taken on a far greater role in backing student loans. I mean, effectively, the federal government is the originator for more than three quarters of all federal loans now. And because the federal government has basically ensured financing for any student, regardless of background means, uh, course of study or type of university, it's further fueled colleges desire for you know, higher tuition. And so you've got this kind of snake eating its tail phenomenon where costs and amount of financing are out of control and, and borrowers are really shouldering the the burden of that um so so it's a tough situation um you know more or less untenable the the leading um candidates in the democratic primary for president last year including then candidate biden all made promises to forgive a large amount of outstanding student loan debt they can do this 
you know, a president theoretically can do this because so much of the debt is originated and held by the federal government. Um, and now that, you know, Joe Biden is President Biden, he's he's said some things about forgiving debt, and he's definitely getting lots of pressure from progressives on the left to commit to more about it. So the, the big question is, you know, what is President Biden going to do? Is he going to forgive uh, what he has suggested in the past, which is forgive $10,000 in student loan debt for all or most borrowers in the US. Um, the challenges that he faces are, it's just not very good policy in terms of its effects. Uh, it's, it's more or less regressive, meaning it sends money uh, to sort of definitionally the college educated who um, on average are higher earning. Um, and so if you were to compare it with another program that simply gave away, you know, $400 billion strictly to low income Americans, uh, the college debt forgiveness program would reach far fewer uh, low income people than uh, a program that was simply scoped to, to low income folks. And so it's just a questionable use of government resources, especially, you know, in the sort of tail part of a pandemic when low income families have really borne the brunt of the economic uh, effect. So, so it's just, it's a, it's a really tough question. Um, you know, it would cost four or $500 billion. Uh, it would go towards at least some affluent people who could probably otherwise afford it. Um, if you were to suddenly forgive $10,000, uh, it might help some people, you know, people who are on the lower end of um, debt holdings, but you also have the average student loan debt holder holding $30,000 or more. Um, and so wiping away 10,000 will have a modest effect on your monthly payment, but won't eliminate it if you hold, you know, say $30,000. And for those people that hold, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100, $120,000 in student loan debt, it helps, but not that much. Um, they're still going to, to be really suffering under the pressure of that debt. Um, and then lastly, it does nothing to rein in colleges' tuition costs. In fact, I, I think, and I write in this piece, if you were to suddenly forgive $10,000 in debt, you create probably two perverse incentives. One, uh, you might encourage borrowers to take out more debt because they once there's one forgiveness, I think they're almost certainly going to need or assume at least there's going to be another forgiveness in the future. Um, and then two, uh, colleges who have barely begun to reform costs all of a sudden lose a big part of their incentive to do so because they too will attribute you know, future solutions to another um, loan cancellation. So it's a hard one. Biden's going to have to do something to satisfy the progressives and fulfill his campaign promise I think $10,000 in forgiveness is pretty likely, but it doesn't change the fact that it's not great policy and it's it's not gonna help the lowest income Americans who really need the help. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I certainly don't envy Biden trying to balance all of those different things. Um, I think just to just to sort of wrap things up, the, the one question I want to ask in, in light of both, you know, that sort of debt cancellation policy and, and the sort of the various elements that have got to be balanced there, and also in terms of, of this sort of $200 billion of stimulus for the sort of K-12 system, you know, if we're sat in a year's time having a cup of coffee in the office, where do you think we're going to be 
Um, what do you think the key changes will have been and, and what issues do you think will remain unresolved even then? Well, um, I hope in a year that we're able to do that. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, I think a year from now in the K-12 side, you know, I, I really hope that we're looking at an environment in which there's a much more natural integration of digital learning and sort of traditional in-person learning. Um, you know, I could, I could foresee a scenario in which uh, a student, I mean, really any student, not just kids who are sort of quote unquote behind, um, you know, goes to school from eight till three and then either after school or back at their house, you know, perhaps they log on to a digital learning platform to either receive, you know, makeup instruction for the things that they're still lagging in or supplemental instruction for the things they're really interested in, um, you know, through an interactive platform that really works. And, and by that, I think I mean, you know, something that delivers synchronous instruction. So they're really seeing a live person, even if they're somewhere else and they're able to ask questions and engage um, with that person, even though it's online. I think that feels like um, a much better balance than what we've had in the past and what we had over the past year, which was sort of ping-ponging between hardly any digital learning versus all digital learning. Um, you know, I think there's an equilibrium here where both things can really complement each other quite well. Um, but we're going to have to be pretty deliberate about it because, you know, too much of one or too much of the other, I think is just going to leave us in the same place, which is people feel like the, the in-person learning isn't realizing the change and the gains that we need to help kids close the gaps. Um, well, well, on the other hand, too much online learning is just not effective, especially for younger kids. So finding that balance and making effective use of it, I think would be a really ideal state um, for K-12. And then on the higher ed front, boy, you know, it's just a much larger problem that's sort of more tightly entwined with society. But I think there's been very promising signs over the past couple of years that folks realize a four-year college degree is not the only path uh, for someone to be successful. Um, I think young people have a much greater awareness that before they commit to a college and take on the debt load, they have to have a realistic vision for what they're going to do on the other side of it and how that view is going to help them you know, effectively pay down the loans that they do take out to attend college. Um, and then thirdly, you know, I think colleges are very, very slowly, but slowly at least understanding that they need to be far more transparent about um, the courses that they offer, how they align to the workforce, what folks might expect, you know, for an average income, and and really laying out the facts for what a, the average kid might expect to learn and then gain as a result of attending that college um, so that if they commit there and if they take on the debt burden, you know, they know there's a plausible path for them to, to repay down the line. Um, but, you know, the last thing I'll say on that, you know, not to be pessimistic, but the, the shift there, you know, the entanglement of society, I think that's hardest is for a very long time, we've only pointed at four-year colleges as uh, kind of the success indicator. And I think we need to become much more tolerant, willing to look at students who 
choose other paths. And I think you're starting to see an industry where, um, for example, some companies no longer require a four-year diploma um, to be hired. And, and I would like to see far more of that coming out of industry, you know, maybe as a result of public pressure, because, you know, there's been interesting studies that uh, the average job posting for an entry-level job, you know, would require years and years of education and experience. And, you know, we just need to be much more realistic and, and confront the fact that we've created something of a house of cards between basic employment requirements, you know, wage stagnation, rising college uh, costs, and sort of societal expectations for young people that is just untenable. Um, and, and I think the sooner we start to chip away at those problems, the better it will be. And, you know, I've got, I've got a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And so I think there's just enough time, if I'm being realistic, for us to figure these things out before they get to college. And so I'm hopeful that, uh, that we'll be able to do that. I like that. It's a good motivator. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, that, thank you so much, Chris. I think um, we would all agree that that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, so as always, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to any of the themes or issues that we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. Um, you can find contact details for Chris and all of our US team on the GC website. That's www.com global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes um, so thank you once again Chris it's been an absolute pleasure um, and thank you to everyone for listening as well thank you Phyllis for more insights blogs and analysis you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list and you can follow us on twitter at global underscore council